So check this out. I got word that Hulu threw this crazy party in Beverly Hills with literally all of the biggest reality TV stars. I'm talking about all the Bravo lebs, Candy Burris, Portia Williams, James Kennedy, Jax Taylor, even Captain Lee and Kate Chastain. Here's the genius part. If you want to find out what happened at the party, you have to watch the commercials. Yes, I know I'll be tuning in and then signing up for a free trial to get my favorite reality TV shows at Hulu.com. Better Call Saul, Season 5, Episode 3, The Guy for This is over. But we're just getting started here at Post Show Recaps. Hello again, everyone. I am Antonio Mazzaro. I am not the only guy for this, though. Uh, I am joined, as always, by Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? Well, not as always, but as of now, as of last week and now for always. now, and now moving forward, yes. at least for the season. Uh, what's up, Biznatch? Oh, please don't call me that. Uh, my Abuelita would not like hearing that word. Uh, yeah, Rob Sesternino has joined us. Uh, for if you if you're just joined if you're just tuning in, Rob Sesternino was here for the first two episodes. We covered them here at Post Show Recaps. We talk about TV and film, and that's what we do. We're going to talk about all season of Better Call Saul. But Josh, it's going to be you and I all season here. Uh, Rob Sesternino and I covered the first four seasons. Rob is a very busy man. Uh, you are also a very busy man, but you're a very great uh, great man graceful great gracious grateful yeah i'd say i am neither of those i'm not any of the things gracious. that you're trying you're to gracious. say right now yeah you're okay. gracious if you say so if you say so i'm just the man i'm just a man you're the guy for this a, i'm just a, i'm just the guy for this yeah i'm the guy who had a mint ice cream mint chocolate chip ice cream cone that i dropped and uh has since been devoured by a bunch of insects and those are the takes that I'm going to be dropping for you here on the Better Call Saul podcast. Yeah, that's our cold open. Uh, is just ants. Do you want ants? Because that's how it's like you get a ants. melty, warm open. It's like a lukewarm <laughs> sidewalk ants infested open. It's a gutter sidewalk uh, ants open. Yeah, this is yeah. this is this is not uh, the best way. I guess if you're specifically triggered by insects or uh, <laughs> then this show yeah. started on a on a hard note this week, and now the podcast is as well. But no, Antonio, I'm thrilled to be talking Saul with you all season long. Uh, certainly, you and I are no strangers to, to podcasting about uh, these prestige TV shows together. We've got a bunch under our belt at this point, uh, and so. To, to chart forward in the in the Breaking Bad universe, just you and me. Don't tell Rob, but like I'm I'm excited about this. Well, uh, although I will miss Rob's Mike Ehrman Trout quite a bit. Oh my God, <laughs> none of us are going to be able to do this. No, right? I'm not even going to try. I mean, I'm sure I probably yeah. will try, but uh, hopefully we'll get Rob before the end of this season uh, to weigh in on everything that happens throughout the course of this season. I'd like to I'd like to do that. I think Rob would be open to that at least once more. So I don't think Mike is dead. Uh, Mike is maybe in a bad way, which we'll certainly talk about in this episode. Uh, but yes. Mike is not gone. Rob is not gone. You and I are here, and we are going to talk about Better Call Saul all season long. We're always open to your feedback on these episodes. Uh, we're on the show itself, Better Call Saul. You can email us at bcs at postshowrecaps.com. Is that correct, Josh? Yes, that's correct. You can also always tweet at me. I am at AC Mazzaro with two Zs and one R. And Josh, you are at Round Howard, which is like a Howard Hamlin, but rounder. Is that right? That it. That is correct. Like Howard Hamlin, but rounder. I was going to say, uh, but like Hank Schrader, but Howard instead of Hank. 
Hey, that's uh, uh, yeah. Let's not bury the lead. Hank is back. Yeah. On, <laughs> Hank's back. Well, Hank has returned. Oh I guess God. he's not returned. He's shown up for the first time in the Better Call Saul universe. But a beloved oh, Breaking Bad great. character, Schrader Brow and all, and Gomi, and Gomi, Gomi as well. Gomi in the house, and like this had been announced the in advance speak. that they were coming back, but we didn't know when they were going to come back. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I was really surprised that they were kind of just like dropped in the middle of the episode. Like I would have figured that like Hank would be like an ending of an episode and it would like set up a Hank arc, or even at the end of like uh like an act break. Uh, and instead, it was like it was an entire Hank act. It was uh, the, the, the Hank and Gomi Pony Show, and it was fantastic. <laughs> oh, two faced lying pony soldier! Uh, yeah, oh, this is great. Yeah, it was. It was really good, and it was. It was the the sort of reveal that this show really revels in when you're doing a prequel show and you're introducing beloved characters. I mean, we had what like three. We had a whole season of episode titles leading us up to Gus Fring with the Fring's back titles yeah. reveal of season two. We had the note that said "Don't" at the end of season two. With with the car alarm and Mike stopping uh, from shooting Hector Salamanca. Uh, and then we went through that entire long sequence that lasted literally all night uh, where Mike went to these very dead drop sites and followed people throughout and followed them around town and ended up with the slow pullback to the Los Pollos Hermanos sign. Uh, so we have a, a show. Like when he recruits Jimmy to go to Pollos Hermanos and you right. see Gus bring like cleaning in the background. In the background. Like they're very, they're like very like, I would say like, Casual but calculated in how they bring, uh, I was about to say Game of Thrones characters, uh, how they bring breaking <laughs> bad characters back into the Better Call of Saul universe. I felt like that was the very, very much in line with what they did with Hank and Gomi's return, where you see a car pull around, you see it's a New Mexico license plate that says government on it. Uh, you see someone wearing like a salmon colored, uh, button down t shirt. With a gut. I know. Yeah, with a bit of a gut, a little bit of a butt, just like crossing the 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 back of the car, Guts and butts, and sauntering in. You're like, oh, here he is. Like even before he presses the badge up to Myrna, uh, it was just, it was so so fun. Uh, the whole reveal uh, with Hank. And just to plug some of my own stuff, as you're listening to this, uh, check out thr.com. We've got an interview up with Dean Norris that I was very happy to do uh, about this uh, this return to Better Call Saul. And I got I got on the phone with Dean Norris, and I was like, I I I said I I started off with some sort of like jocular Josh Wiggler tone of like, oh my god, it means the world to me that like Hank is is alive and well, and he just like immediately like before saying a single word just like burst out with the hank horse laugh uh like he was just like such a jolly guy talking about the return of hank he was like so ecstatic to talk about it which was a little surprised because i i thought that he had put the character to bed that had been like the last that i had heard of it that he really didn't want to reprise the role uh because he felt like they had told the story he didn't want to do anything that was just sort of like spinning the wheels and is just fan servicey. And his feeling on it, Antonio, was that like this isn't fan servicey. Now Hank is like part of like is an integral part of the Saul transformation. Um, that like Jimmy as Saul is getting deeper into the to the uh, to the crystal meth scene in New Mexico with his first brush with Lalo in this episode and hooking up crazy eight with being a criminal informant, or should I say Domingo? He's not quite crazy eight yet. Uh, and Hank being that guy that this is all part of that circular process that is plugging Jimmy into Saul and charting that progression. So he felt like coming back and being part of that active evolution for that character was a meaningful reason to return to the show. Did you ask him about his Twitter use? <laughs> I thought about it, <laughs> but I was 
wasn't courageous enough to do it. I did think about it. It was on my maybe list, but I couldn't, I couldn't get trigger. there. I couldn't. If he do had it. just walked you in and mentioned like the fans on Twitter yeah. are clamoring for it or something I to that know. effect, uh, I couldn't do it. I yeah, couldn't that's too do bad. It. Too bad. If you're unaware it. of the joke we're making, uh, I think the tweet is still up. Just look up uh, Dean Norris. Uh, GIFs, G-I-F-S, or GIFs, however you want to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> on Twitter, you'll, you'll probably get to this at some point. But, uh, yeah, this was a, it was, it's all, the, the show really loves doing this. Obviously, you're talking about a show where, uh, we found out, like we talked about last week, how Crazy Eight got his name. Like they love filling in the blanks of these stories. So from the Breaking Bad universe, we did know that Domingo had worked with the DEA, that he was a criminal informant, and that he was somebody specifically that had worked with Hank Schrader, that he was Hank's informant. And so it and always makes sense. I forgotten about that because yeah. uh, that's such early Breaking Bad yeah. stuff that it's, it, it all blends together. It's very easy to, to miss miss out on that. But um, that's that's a great puzzle piece that they're, they're plugging in. Here. Yeah, and I, I've listened to their official Better Call Saul podcast, and they go into granular detail about their process from uh, the filters they use on certain lights to what type of cameras they were using to uh, how the writer's room works and talking about how they have got these big board of ideas and things that they know from Breaking Bad that were up there, uh, things that they essentially established with the character, uh, like Jimmy uh, having an offhanded line, or I guess Saul in Breaking Bad, about how convincing a woman uh, he was Kevin Costner uh, started a relationship. And we actually see that, of course, in Better Call Saul at by the end of season one. That's a thing where they, they knew that that was something they had said in Breaking Bad and they wanted to uh, find a way to close that loop. So there are these things. And Domingo, once he was put on the show uh, as somebody who was working with Nacho, uh, working for the Salamanca organization, uh, it is just always been somebody that you know is going to end up in an informant. So how do we get there? And it makes sense that we get there by bringing Hank into the mix himself. And I think that's a, actually a valid point about how it's not just on a fan service level. It is on a Saul Goodman becoming Saul Goodman level. Uh, you're, you're talking about Jimmy McGill as, as Saul Goodman that we saw last week. He's churning and burning through these clients. He's doing all the things that, that we know Saul Goodman can do. He's on the, the Bluetooth head, head, you know, headspace, but he's not necessarily working directly very- with. Yeah, it's very low grade exactly. compared to where he's going to go. Right. Yeah. So it, it makes sense that we would we would end up there uh, through his own actions. Ultimately, do you want to trace? I know you rewatched as did I. Can you trace uh, the through line for everyone on exactly how Jimmy first came into contact with Nacho and how right. that all played out? Well, so so you'll have to help me a little bit, but but I but my memory of it, having rewatched it really quickly, is you know. The Jimmy and Nacho stories are very linked in the first season uh, that that Jimmy and Nacho brush paths because uh, Jimmy's got like the skater boy twins and they've got the big plan and they're going to they're going to get the money from. Oh, my gosh. What's the the Kettleman's? The, the yeah, they're going to they're going to try and get the Kettleman's involved with Jimmy and they're going to scam her. And instead, uh, they cross paths with Tuco's Abuelita and uh, Jimmy's able to negotiate. Don't kill the kids. Uh, just break their legs. It's like eye for an eye. And Tuco initially thinks that he's going to. That means he's going to take out their eyes, which is all <laughs> all good. Uh, that's where we get the famous biznatch because they call his Abuelita a biznatch, which is referenced in this episode. The show has a long memory. Uh, Peter Gould and the team have a long memory, as you say, for uh, for what they've put on the show. Uh, very smart structure that they're doing inside the writer's room. Um, but Nacho then gets involved in the Kettleman of it all uh, because he he's caught wind of that through the Tuco interaction. Uh, he's going to get 
busted because Jimmy is going to try and save the Kettlemans from getting killed by Nacho, or so he thinks is what's going to happen. Uh, he then has to work overtime to get Nacho out of uh, the legal jam, and Nacho doesn't like Jimmy at all through any of this. And I think that that's their final interaction. I don't think that we've seen them cross paths since season one. Is that right? I don't think so either. Uh, that's yeah. that's to my memory their last interaction, and it was but you're it was right. very tense. Like they left it on a bad note, and like you know, Nacho then became more uh, in you know crossover with the Mike storyline, and then sort of his own storyline. He started to develop a little bit more in season three, um, and now uh, it makes sense that they're back, as we talked about with with Rob last week. Uh, that we are charting towards some future point where, you know, uh, Jimmy as Saul is going to be taken out in the middle of the desert by Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. He's going to talk about Ignacio and Lalo. Uh, so for him to hook back up with those characters and to meet Lalo for the first time um, feels like it was an inevitability. It definitely does. And I think on that note, feels like it was an inevitability. I think it's important from a moral standpoint to trace the through line here as well. You highlighted it. It's it's not that Jimmy accidentally crossed paths with Tuco and Nacho, although it, it was an accident, but it was an accident that he rigged. Uh, it was an accident that he was doing from a morally corrupt standpoint to try to convince a person to sign with him for a much bigger case. He was, he was putting on a scam and it was a slip and Jimmy scam. And he hired these two guys who he happened to come across who tried to run a scam on him uh, to do this scam. And it just turned out that they picked the wrong person, unfortunately. But it was his own moral in, you know, inaction or just essentially going morally sideways with to try to get the Kettleman account that put him in the crosshairs, literally, of Tuco uh, and put this whole situation in motion. He doesn't meet Nacho if it wasn't for his own bad action to begin with. And I'm drawing that line because I, I think that that's a, a huge part of this idea cream situation and it's a huge part of tying this all together it's it's jimmy's actions um that he is that are essentially the the chickens are coming home to roost because of his own activities Um, he's a guy who on on the surface and on the outside he's ice cream but he's not very far from being ant ridden covered lying in the street uh really dirty uh the 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 jimmy we know in breaking bad yeah and it's because of his own actions ultimately yeah and where where he goes he leaves this kind of a mess yes you know like this is something that he's been uh, accused of by characters along the way that like everything he touches turns to shit you know like everything he touches you know goes to rot and decay and fester uh fester uh and and no no different no different with the ice cream here and uh you know it's it's one of the things that's such a joy about about better call saul uh and can sometimes be maybe just like a little bit like frustrating when they don't do it well they they will stop down and, and do these montages that really are just like their sole purpose is to maybe a dual purpose one because it's cinematic and cool uh, like we could just like stop down and talk about how it was gross, but it was very effectively shot and looked amazing. Uh, so there's that purpose. You know, they, they love to, to try new tricks. Um, but the other is always just like drilling really deep into the theme. And the theme is always relatively stable. And the theme of what we're charting with Jimmy, it is that slow motion car wreck. Uh, you know, we know that just like calamity is coming and like what we're watching is like every single piece of the final destination style, uh, highway pileup. Uh, and this is just like another aspect of that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it really is the ice cream in the gutter 
uh, is the Jimmy thing. And it isn't just that he does these, that, that everything he touches turns this way, or that there's decay lurking so close to the surface, uh, much like, a, I don't know, like a, a Lynchian, like a blue velvet kind of thing, where you pan from the idyllic uh, suburban atmosphere down through the ground, uh, and you see the ants right under uh, the surface. Um, this is the, 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 the thing that's lurking for all of us, knowing that he is to become Saul Goodman in the Breaking Bad world and what that looks like. Uh, this is that, that. And why it's interesting, of course, is we know he's not ultimately a bad guy on a lot of levels. Like we've seen him throughout sacrifice and put himself uh, out because of Kim and do things uh, that are ultimately against his interest. If, if it's turning in hundreds of thousands of dollars of money uh, or if it's doing things like that because he cares about Kim Wexler and he wants to help her. Um, that has always been a thing that is happening throughout. He gets himself arrested with his brother um, because he's upset about making Verde and what Chuck did uh, to get that client from from what he thought Kim rightfully deserved. Uh, Jimmy goes through this great scam and switches the numbers, and it ultimately ends with him getting arrested. Uh, but that's all really for Kim. Uh, it's certainly to get one over on Chuck, but it's it's really because Chuck's trying to get one over on Kim, and Jimmy is is the part of that. So the thing is, he's totally aware of a lot of this. He's not the guy who drops his ice cream in the gutter and then doesn't see the ants. It attracts. He gets put back in the same spot, and he sees it. He knows that's his ice cream. He knows he attracts the ants. When, for example, Lalo is recounting the story that you were just talking about, right? With the the twins in the desert and Biznatch. And he says, hey, you know what? The Tuco I know would have killed those guys and they walked out of there. And Jimmy says, well, they didn't walk out of there. Like Jimmy right. knows that his actions have consequences, even as like the fables of Jimmy or the stories of Jimmy, maybe don't tell the story that way. Jimmy has the humanity still he is aware of these things. Uh, he certainly is afraid of Ignacio and Lalo, uh, even though I, you're right uh, in that Nacho was never really happy with Jimmy. Uh, he came to the nail salon and he left a matchbook with his number on it because he was impressed with Jimmy the first time, because he was impressed with how Jimmy was actually able to negotiate with a wild man like Tuco. Uh, that was something that impressed Nacho. And Nacho was that when you know, I, I think Nacho's line to Jimmy is something like, when you realize who you are, give me a call. Uh, because, right. you know, I can see that you're a scumbag. If you're not ready to admit it yet, when you are, we can work together. And so now he doesn't give Jimmy that choice. They just pick him up off the street. Yeah, uh, I got it before we I, I loved Lalo's interactions with Jimmy in this. Yes, episode. so funny. Uh, now that Rob's not here, I think we could just say I love Lalo. I'm <laughs> I'm have, I'm I'm lolling at Lalo. He's cracking me up. Uh, he's so dangerous, but like he's got like this this swagger about him that I think is super fun to watch. Uh, <laughs> the best the best moment of the episode for me, aside from seeing Hank and Gomi back in action, uh, was when when. Uh, Jimmy realizes that he's not here to be killed. Uh, he's like, oh, I thought I was going to have to swallow a balloon with heroin in it. And Lalo laughs. He goes, ha, uh, maybe later. <laughs> it's <was laughs> yes. just it was so great just because menacing. Like, it's both a joke, but also so real. Like, yep. he, you know, if you don't go the right way on this, yeah, maybe later. That's going to that's gonna be where we go. Uh, and even when when Jimmy's like trying to like uh, highball him, him uh, on, on the price and, and buy his way out of having to do this because of what you say, the moral repercussions, like there is still some of that here for Jimmy. 
Jimmy. It's starting to fade away. Uh, it's starting to be uh, devoured, much like ants destroy a Sunday uh, or a nice. It wasn't a Sunday, but sometimes if it was on a Sunday, that Sunday is pretty gross and 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 ruined. Um, <laughs> that he he was trying to be like, you can't afford me. Uh, and little did he know, he was lowballing himself because Lau was happy to uh, to to boost the pay. Yeah, the Lau lowball. Uh, and even later when Jimmy's like, yeah, so uh, keep uh, Domingo alive. He's my client. Uh, I, I am invested in his continued survival. And hey, if you got other stuff, like maybe don't call me. I'm just very, very busy. I'm not going to have the time to do this. And Lala just like laughs at him. Says, You'll make time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ah, uh, and and poor Nacho, who's like, it doesn't matter if you want to be in the middle middle of this or not. It's just the way it is. And that's like coming from like a very dark place with Nacho where he's really caught in between a few worlds. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that because that's another key part of this story, obviously. So that when Nacho does say to Jimmy in the desert after the last Lalo scene that you're talking about where Lalo is a madman and just racing his car around the desert against no one. uh, Nacho says, you know, it's not about what you want when you're in, you're in. Uh, And he's saying that to himself as much as Jimmy, unfortunately in that scene. Uh, And I, I just, like I said, I'm reminded of that, that moment where Nacho does visit Jimmy in the nail salon and says to him, like, when you realize who you are, give me a call. Um, Jimmy maybe is going to have to accept who he is. Maybe it's not a matter of realization uh, so much as it's a matter of acceptance. Like, he may not be the guy uh, who he thinks he, he is. He may be the guy who thinks that when a bunch of uh, guys from a cartel pick you up off the street, they're going to kill you. That's not the case. They actually think that you're a scumbag and they can use you. And you're right. right. And there are those moments for Jimmy throughout. Uh, if you'll, I'm thinking back to season one where Mike needs a similar thing, where he needs a shady lawyer. Uh, Mike is under suspicion of murder, and this is around the time of the 5-0 episode uh, in season one. And Mike gives Jimmy a call, basically, knowing that uh, he he solicits Jimmy as his lawyer, knowing full well that he can trust Jimmy to spill coffee on a cop so that Mike can steal the guy's notebook and see what he has. Uh, And Jimmy says to some point, like, says to Mike at some point throughout this caper, like, how did you know that that I would do that? I was going to do it, yeah. yeah. And Mike just kind of looks at him like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know who he you think he you are. Know, he doesn't even know, need to know the word slipping Jimmy to know he's slipping Jimmy. Exactly. Uh, so, and this is the, I mean, this is obviously a central part of the show is people's various levels of acceptance of who Jimmy McGill is. Uh, Chuck called it out from a mile away, right? And Chuck knew at his core what he was. And Chuck was so obsessed and so dedicated to the moral correctness of the law. Law, uh, that he never wanted Jimmy anywhere near that. He wanted to keep Jimmy under his thumb because he knew he was a chimp with a machine gun, as he said, uh, when he became a lawyer. Uh, Kim, I think, is at a different level of her acceptance of this. And we see that throughout this episode. We see, for example, after the scenes, the beginning of the episode. Uh, Mr. Acker. Yeah, well, <laughs> Mr. Acker is later. Uh, but oh, but Kim, Kim and Jimmy on the balcony uh, and Kim's so happy there's no Mesa Verde tomorrow. And Saul Goodman uh, just had his best day, Jimmy said. And Kim doesn't say good for you. She says good for Saul. She doesn't want to really accept that they're the same person. And it isn't there yet uh, for her. Uh, And it's just I'm I'm struggling with this, to be honest. I'm struggling with having a lot of sympathy for uh, for Kim. And this was a really good episode to expose that a little bit. Uh, I don't know. So let's talk about Mr. Acker. Kim Kim's situation is what that she 
she is working for these pro bono clients, uh, but she still has the, the master's voice is Mesa Verde. Like they're the ones right. who pay the bills. And when Rich Schweikert, her boss at Schweikert and Coakley calls and says, Hey, Kevin Wachtel from Mesa Verde really wants you out there. You have to drop everything you're doing. You have to drop the good cause and go out there. And, and it's she's just, already like played the card where she's like fully ignored that. And yep. that did not go over great. Correct. Uh, so she she she's like run out of like being able to do that. Yeah, she's she has burnt to her time where she can't case. do that, yeah. right? Yeah. So then she goes out there and it doesn't go well with Mr. Acker. It doesn't. It doesn't. And to me, it's so so this where, where they are right now and this problem where Mr. Acker doesn't want to leave the house. Uh and he's like the only person who's holding out. Is this the the same plot of land that she and Jimmy uh did the big ruse uh in in I think it was the penultimate of season 4 um where they where they go and they like switch out the the blueprints and everything like that. Is this the same place? No, I don't think it is. Uh that was for that I think was in Lubbock maybe, but that was okay. specifically for uh a different style of one particular bank. Basically, yeah. Kevin Wachtel had noticed that a a particular design of a bank was doing really well and getting better foot traffic. And he said, hey, is it too late to go change the design of this other proposed bank? And Paige from Mesa Verde said, yes, it is. And she wanted Kim to back her up. And Kim did. But then Kim and Jimmy, of course, uh, did what they did to change it. I don't know how. We never saw how Kim was able to explain that to Paige, by the way. That felt like a loose end to me, that Paige might ultimately become uh, cognizant of what Kim is doing. That might call right, her out right. for it. Uh, right. TBD on that. But this is a different... This is just like a neighborhood that they've essentially bought all the properties out of that they want to build a call center in, uh, not a bank specifically. And there is the one, I, the one holdout. I do, and I do think that like where I was going to go with it is still thematically linked, even if it's not like directly linked to where we left Kim in in the end of season four. Is she's been taking on this pro bono load because it makes her feel better about herself. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's tragically, even if he gets many of the details wrong, uh, Mister Acker is not entirely incorrect about his assessment of Kim Wexler, uh, that she is taking on these pro bono cases, I think, in large part because she's good at it. Sure. uh, But being good at it means she feels better. uh, And she also feels like it takes some of the moral stain off of what she's doing uh, with with, you know, the the big bank work that she is doing for Mesa Verde uh, and dis you know, uprooting people's lives like Mr. Acker. And it doesn't matter that Mr. Acker is a bit of an ass clown, which he absolutely is like, you know, the way that he's talking to Kim is very uncool. Um, but like she gets it from the perspective of this man who is being asked to completely, uh, you know, change and dramatically transform his life with no real say in the matter uh that he's been like actually ordered to do this in in a court of law now at this point and all he's going to get for it is you know you know fifteen thousand dollars or whatever it was eighteen thousand dollars i think eighteen thousand uh, you can buy a mansion with a pool you know like he's not gonna be able to do much with that uh and so like she's doing good work for certain people but her the bulk of her income is coming at the expense of human beings uh, is coming. You know, it, there is this karmic toll um, that I think is is weighing on her. And especially when she's taking that home with her and all she can do about it to relieve the stress right now is to throw beer bottles into a parking lot uh, alongside Jimmy. Um, she doesn't realize that like she's she's party to somebody who is also sort of like spreading that level of destruction with his own work with with 
with Jimmy. And uh, I think that there's probably like some base level at which she understands that. Um, I think that she knows she's like she's one of those people who's like she's too far into the process that to, to unplug you know, to, to, to walk away from what she's doing, both in her intimate relationship with Jimmy and also in her professional capacity with Mesa Verde would be to completely it'd be like Felicity chopping off all of her hair in the beginning of season two. It's a radical makeover uh, and it's not a nothing to do, Antonio. Um, and I, I understand why she feels like she can't. I think that there is like some level of Stockholm syndrome to these, you know, alters at which she is in service. Um, but I thought that this episode pushed the ball as far as what we were talking about in the premiere recap of imagining the scenario where Kim is back in her small town. You know, she, she goes home. Um, you can see like from these interactions with Mr. Acker that like, even when she goes back to him to try and help him pick out a house uh, and like, maybe we can like do this together. I will take off any day this week and help you move. And that's still not enough um, that she she may get to a point where like even separate from Jimmy or maybe like sped along by Jimmy, but maybe not in like the massive blowout that we're thinking, but it could still be the massive blowout we're thinking feels like, you know what? Screw all of this. I am going to chop all the hair off and I'm leaving New Mexico and I'm going back home and I'm going to fight the fight for the little people, uh, you know, and I, I, I can imagine that. And I think that this episode pushed her in that direction, which is something that you want for her if you want Kim Wexler to survive Better Call Saul. Definitely. Uh, there, She and Jimmy are both in, in many ways uh, struggling with uh, their level of being the guy for this. Uh, they call in the hammer. They call in Kim Wexler uh, to go talk to Mr. Acker because she's the one who can get things done. And Paige is so happy when she snaps at the guy. Uh, Kim snaps at Mr. Acker and Kim says something that she could easily be saying to Jimmy or maybe to herself. Um, you don't get to make up your own rules. Put your big boy pants on and face reality. No one's mistreating you here is what she says to Mr. Acker. And Paige says, like, you ended it. That's what we needed. Kim's the guy for this. I mean, that's this was what they needed right. from her. Uh, and she and Jimmy are on, at similar place by the end of the episode where Jimmy's not happy about being the guy for what he was the guy for. Uh, and Kim is not happy about being the guy that she was the you know thing that she was the guy for so they are very much in that same place throwing beer bottles at their anger uh and at the world so you're right to say and i think we talked about this last episode right that you could foresee a circumstance where kim leaves this story that she leaves behind everything in new mexico she goes back home she does fight for the little guy and that maybe she does come then back into contact with gene at some point in the modern or, or let's say post breaking bad uh timeline on the show the black and white timeline. I could see it happening and I've always thought it, it's a possibility. So I, I do agree that the more that Kim gets into this position where she is not happy with Mesa Verde and her role in the world and the more the Mr. Ackers of the world call her, read her on this, uh, completely just everything, uh, that, that is bad about, uh, how she feels bad about what's happening. The, I think the more likely we are that she could, uh, take a powder and get out of town. Um, she is, she and Jimmy both are fully cognizant of what uh, the show, uh, had an episode title called sunk costs uh they have both quoted the sunk cost fallacy uh and the idea that you know just because you pursued all this thing uh or pursued all these things that you have to keep doing it essentially uh continuing your behavior um that uh, because you previously invested all this time and effort uh that's i think a lot of what kim wexler does uh, not just with mesa verde but of course with jimmy as well and, yeah. But there's this other side to it. And this is the side where I have less sympathy. 
is I do think that she has enjoyed uh, the pushback. I think for yeah. the first time in this episode, whether it was sincere or not, uh, we actually really got a full accounting of why Kim may be the way that she is with regard to fight the power. Uh, and we got that uh, with the story that she told to Mr. Acker about how when she was growing up, uh, she had to move from house to house and sometimes in she the had, middle of the they night. They didn't own anything. Yeah, her, toes, so her toes were blue. Yes. It was a brilliant performance by right. Rhea Seahorn. It was. Uh, never to be understated how, how brilliant uh, what she is doing with Kim uh, is. But if it had been Jimmy McGill delivering that monologue, we've seen it. It wouldn't have been sincere. I actually think there was sincerity there. But I think ultimately what Acker realized is that, you know, you are set, you're being sincere, but you're being sincere because you want to get what you want. Uh, in, in, in the way that you're doing this, you're allowing yourself to show vulnerability so that you can get what you want. And then that is a form of manipulation. Whether or not you're sincere about how it made you feel or not, uh, it is a form of manipulation. And you're trying to build a bond with me so that you can get me to do what you want. I, I don't care, lady. I don't care who you are. And I don't care what you're doing. And I think that was really difficult. Uh, but for Kim, the, the motivation has always been questionable. Like I said, uh, she was the one who got really excited by the the caper they pulled with Huel, the Cachada caper they pulled with Huel last season, uh, where they started the fake letter writing campaign and the phone calls from Louisiana to get Huel out of the legal trouble that he was in. Uh, and she that was the most passionate I've ever seen her be with Jimmy when it worked. And then she said, "Let's do it again." And that's when she did the Mesa Verde thing. So I, she, I think the part where I'm a little more sympathetic for Jimmy is she's looking down on Saul Goodman, but she has always enjoyed these capers uh, and she has in fact bent the legal rules herself on occasion and I, I just don't know I, where her real looking down on Jimmy comes from except for to say on some level I think she's looking down on herself She's looking yeah. down on the decision she's made. She's looking down on uh, the the sunk cost uh, that she is pursuing with Jimmy McGill, and she realizes she she should be doing better. And she has said about Mesa Verde, for example, "What did I do? I made like a state bank into a regional bank. Big deal. Right. Like, oh, right. so great, you know." So I, I get why she's upset about this. It, it it does make me wonder, like, what's the snap moment? Like, where are we headed with her in terms of her leaving town or in terms of her you getting mean, in like, trouble? In terms of someone snapping their fingers and half of the population of the Better Call Saul yes. universe disappearing into uh, thin air? Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. Justice is blind. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. The Thanosing. Yeah, I don't think that's happening. No, but not, I, not until Heisenberg shows up. Anyway, I just look. We we had we had been wondering what would push Jimmy to become Jimmy McGill uh, as Saul Goodman to become essentially the Saul Goodman character. That was the central question of the first few seasons. We're there now, so I think the question now becomes like, what happens to Kim Wexler? in this in this timeline where Jimmy is Saul Goodman that pushes her out of the story. Why does Jimmy as Saul Goodman, why is he different in Breaking Bad? Yeah, he's funny, he's acerbic, but he seems like a real scumbag. And where does he get that scumbag? Where does that come from? Because he's such a nice guy in Breaking in Better Call Saul. And I, I got to imagine the stuff with Kim uh, is a huge part of that. And I don't yeah. care about it just as it informs Jimmy. I'm all in on the Kim storyline at this point through her own merit and through the work of Seahorn. I just, I'm very curious as to what the moment is that's going to cause her to get sideways with Mesa Verde. Yeah. Because because the money's really good for Jimmy right now. Saul just had his best day ever, yeah. and like it was, you know, very morally objectionable work that he had to perform. But we know he's going to perform a lot more of yeah. it, and that money eventually is going to start talking. But does that money talk loudly enough if um, if Kim is still in the picture? Uh, I don't know. So so it would 
you know, it's not like he hasn't kept secrets from her in the past. So it's it's not impossible that he just like drills down so deeply into being Saul Goodman while uh, and like being connected to Lalo and Nacho while Kim is still in the picture. Um, but I can imagine it's even easier for him to just go all the way in on that if he's just even more embittered that here he is. Jimmy McGill once again never gets to have a good thing. Um, and, you know, he gets so bitter and he takes it all so personally and he feels like he's constantly being done wrong by the world. And I think in that regard, actually, uh, to what you said about how he sees the ants on the ice cream, uh, I do think that there are times when he doesn't. And I do think that there are times where there, there are certain ways in which he feels like uh, the law is unfair. The law does not work for him, so he's going to make the law work for him. Like, the, the law is unjust, so he's going to bring justice to the to the, to the the world. And I think we talked about that in the with the season four finale uh, and how he has that, like, big, you know, what I said was a pump-up speech but really was very dangerous words that he's uh that he's doling out there and are very very um you know projective in terms of his own experience uh and i can imagine the realm where kim is the person who has like the clear the clear-eyed moral break where she's like what i'm doing is not good what i'm doing does not sit well with me certainly like the like questionably legal things that we've done i can't keep doing that i have to rid myself of that behavior and that means a breakup with jimmy a, a departure of out from albuquerque whatever it is you can imagine jimmy responding to that very very callously very very bitterly the way that he responded to chuck basically abandoning him um so i think that that's something to to keep an eye on i don't i don't think that Jimmy can go all the way in on being Saul Goodman until Kim takes some kind of stand like that. Yeah. And it, it just seems to be coming because she, like I said, she got called out on the carpet by Mr. Acker and it, it definitely hit her to the point where she's throwing the beer bottles by the end of the episode. But like I said, there is this aspect of her character that I think enjoys bending the rules or sees the value in it. So she's going, something's going to have to, to a switch is going to have to go off uh, where you're right, where she's going to draw the line in the sand and not the sand in Mr. Acker's front yard. Uh, because ultimately these characters are, are having to deal with the consequences of their actions and come to grips with uh, who they are. And that's so much of what Better Call Saul is. It's certainly happening with Mike Ehrmantraut in this episode too, Josh. Uh, Mike does not like the Sydney <laughs> Opera House. And yeah, I, why? Why? What's this deal with the Sydney <laughs> Opera House? Do you not you remember? You've got to take the third one out from the bottom. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, this is a, very, no memory of it's this. a very deep cut, but in uh, it, it ties back to Werner Ziegler. Uh, uh -huh. in, in the last season, Mike let Werner and the boys uh, cut loose a little bit when they were stressed out and they went out to a bar and Werner did some dumb shit. Uh, Werner started telling just some locals about a project he was working on locally and he went into great detail about the architecture uh, and it caused Mike to ultimately yank him out of the bar. But before that, uh, he and Mike were sitting at the bar and they were just swapping stories and Werner pointed to that postcard to the Sydney Opera House and he said, you know, my father designed that. He, he built that. He was an architect and he built the Sydney Opera House. That was his. Wow. Uh, and so Mike is remembering that as he's sitting, yeah. go to another bar, Mike. Like there are other bars in Albuquerque. You don't have to go to the same place that you have these bad memories yeah, with Werner Ziegler. He's trying to atone and he's trying to like look it in the eye or maybe he can't escape looking it in the eye. Like I think that there is this piece of like, oh God, what have I done? Um, whether it's mindful or mindless is hard to say. Uh, you know, I don't think Mike is, uh, I, I, I don't think you could really accuse him of being like the deepest thinker. Not to say that he's not razor sharp. Obviously he is, but I think he sees things pretty black and white. I think what he's seeing is like, so what I've done 
in killing Werner Ziegler is I've committed to being a horrible person. Uh, and because I'm a bad person now, because I'm officially a bad guy, I have to sit in that. I have to live in that. I don't get to take myself off the hook. I wouldn't let anyone else off the hook on this. I have to sit in being a bad person. Uh, and I think he was already like, you know, taking on, um, you know, certainly out of love for his granddaughter and his daughter-in-law, you know, getting more involved in Kaylee's life and everything. But I think also because he felt like moral responsibility to do that because of what happened to his son and the role that he felt he played in that Um, here, like, who does he have to like pay that forward with, with Werner, uh, like to, to step out and like comfort anyone associated with that would be to, to blow up covers, would be to make things very dangerous for his family. There's really no one he can confide in for any of this stuff. So he has no choice but to drunkenly wallow or to potentially drunkenly brawl with a bunch of people on the street. Uh, so he's like, you know, he's getting all of this out of his system in, in very unhealthy ways. Uh, though I'm, I'm glad that he got it out of his system the way that he did this week because watching him tool on that punk, uh, was, was pretty amazing. These people who were just like coming after him and here comes old man Mike just like knock the guy's arm clean out of its socket. Yeah. And you're, I think you're right about whether it's conscious or unconscious in terms of his own desire to atone. Uh, I, he, he knows exactly what he's doing by antagonizing these guys. Like he knows he's going to get in a fight and he wants to get in a fight and they're not up to it. I mean, he obviously has ripped the guy's arm out of the socket and says like, well, anyone else, you know, like he's ready to go. So it is, it, it is a, is a man who I think is willing to accept his fate, whatever comes of it. He's not going to, he, he even says to them, like, I got a lot more money than $20. Like he is willing to say like, bring it on. Come at me. I'd love for you to beat the shit out of me, uh, but they are not up to the task. So he, he is definitely seeking atonement. Uh, but it's on that sunk cost fallacy, right? Where he's already far down the road. You're right. I think to, and you called this out on last podcast that he gives the speech to Price, uh, or Daniel Wormald about you're already a criminal. Now it's just a matter of like what kind of criminal you are. Mike has crossed the line and the acceptance of that brings back all the guilt that he already felt about 5-0 and that he had a little bit in his rearview mirror with what he was doing in Albuquerque in terms of not doing that. Uh, but he acted out of guilt with regard to Stacy. He didn't, you know, he's, he's a very smart guy when it comes to investigation. He knew her story was bullshit about the fact that her house was getting shot up and all this. He stayed up all night and he knew there were no gunshots and yet he did not do anything to intercede. He let himself get further down that path where he had to financially support her because he felt guilty about what happened to his son. And he's still dealing with so much of that. So, so much of that father and son guilt is there. That's there with Nacho too, right? Like it's there in this story of Nacho and Nacho's inability to get out or Nacho's inability uh, to be defined by his decisions or not defined by them as the case may be. Nacho, it seems like Josh has tried to pull a caper where he's getting his dad out of town <laughs> yeah. by buying the we're business on, out from under him. We're on Papa Patrol this Papa week. Papa Patrol, sure. yes, here we are. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he wants to basically come up with a scheme to like get his dad to think that uh, he's got this great offer and it's not anything attached to Nacho, but Papa knows his son. You know, he know he knows what's going on. They've got the history. He knows that things have been dangerous in the past and he can smell what's going on here. And he does not like it at all. And guess what, Antonio? I don't like it either. Yeah, I don't like it either. Me neither. This is awful news for Papa. I know. Can't imagine. Can't imagine he's going to be OK. I, th- I think that this <sighs> is bad. He should have taken the deal uh, in this game of wheel or no wheel. He should have taken the briefcase and gotten out of Dodge. 
Uh, I think this is bad for instead, Papa. Instead, he says, "Mira me los ojos, like look me in the eyes." Yeah, uh, you know, I know that you're full of it. I'm not running. I'm gonna stay. And the thing is, like he, uh, Papa makes a really good point here uh, that Nacho could he could go. Like I, I know Nacho is under. Like Nacho is in the game, and Nacho has a lot of responsibilities. But we know Nacho has the passports. Like Nacho could get out of town. There isn't really heat on Nacho. First of all, like it's not like he's under federal investigation, or it would be hard for him to cross the border. The only people that would come after him are the Salamancas, and I gotta believe they have bigger fish to fry than if Nacho Varga just disappears and is never seen or heard from again. I don't think that that. That's going to be a big problem for him. Why is Nacho not getting out? That's the question that I have. Like, why has he not run? His dad won't run. I think that's the main reason Nacho won't get out is he's never going to skip town and never going to bolt while his dad is still around because he knows if there is going to be any blowback, that's where it would be. If he can get his dad out of town, however, maybe Nacho can get out. And I don't know why Nacho doesn't say that to his dad. Like, hey, if you leave, I can leave and I will leave with you. But right now we're not at a point where Nacho, I guess, wants to take it on the run, even though it is something we know he has contemplated. Um, he is just in so deep with, uh, with Gus. Never mind, never mind where he is with the Salamancas. Um, of course, this episode, uh, what we see ultimately is that Nacho lets Gus know about the plan, um, because of course he has to, uh, and, Gus is very unhappy. Um, and Gus is basically, Gus is, is in a position where he has to either decide whether he's going to let this happen or not. And Nacho's essentially pleading for his life. He's saying like, Hey, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be burnt if, uh, if you don't let these dead drops go, like they're going to know somebody talked and Lala will take me off the board. So Nacho is in a very difficult position right now. And I don't think it's going to end well for Papa. And that's upsetting to me. It's very upsetting as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not looking forward to that at all. Uh, you'll have to, you may have to podcast solo that week. Uh, if we can, <laughs> I'm not, uh, or we'll just have to start podcasting, uh, as if nothing bad happened to Papa and we start living in some sort of alternate Better Call Saul timeline here on the podcast. We can change it to the Papodcast. Yeah, that's what we'll do. <laughs> we'll do the Papodcast. Oh, oh, uh, and man. it'll be all Papa all the time. Papa news. We'll talk about like embroidery and like seat coverings for cars yep. and no, stuff like that. Yeah. It's yeah. good. That's how um, it. I hey, feel- podcasts are very occupied space. But I don't think there is a car embroidery podcast out there. I don't think so. Not that I can think of. Um, I feel like as we're looking towards wrapping up, I feel like we haven't given nearly enough credit to obviously great to have Hank and Gomi back on the show. But the scene itself was so wonderful uh, because this is something that I, I love, like the play acting within the world of Better Call Saul. Yes, the meta. Uh, you know, where Jimmy like slides the thing over to Domingo and says, uh, how are your memorization skills? And you're in the scene and like, you're not entirely sure at first, like, is this an actual disagreement between Jimmy and Domingo? Is this all a ruse? Uh, and then like, it becomes pretty clear that like, they're, they're in cahoots together. It, it definitely does seem, uh, that that's, uh, that that's clear, like that, that Hank is on to this and that their cahoots are very exposed. But I, I love the meta of it, right? Because their cahoots are exposed. Hank sniffs that out. Hank goes to the door, bangs in the door, says, we're out of here. And then I think Jimmy does a thing where he is, this is why he's the guy for this. 
he pivots. Uh, and unbeknownst to Domingo, this is not part of the plan. I thought Domingo was not really playing his role very well, even though he was playing his role. It was very funny where he was saying, like, I don't want to do that. I want to talk. Yeah, I waive my rights. I don't need a lawyer. Like, it, it just was so obvious. Uh, but I think he's very scared when Jimmy says contingent. Like, he, he Domingo looks at him like, what are you talking about? And I think that does ultimately take Hank by surprise. Jimmy is pivoting in that moment. Uh, and I think it is Jimmy who it, it was not part of the plan. It is his humanity that says, I want him to be a protected informant. Uh, otherwise, he ends up bleeding out on his mother's front lawn. Uh, and Domingo's like, what? And Jimmy's like, don't worry. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so yeah. I, I do love the meta of the whole scene. You're right. The, the, the song and dance, uh, you will. The Just the back and forth of how that all plays out in that scene is really fun. Uh, and it is just, uh, it's, it's very classic Hank, for sure. Just like, I'm not here for this. I don't want any part of this. Just bucking up his back. He's a silverback Hank. And so to yeah. see him behave the way he's behaving, uh, it, it takes Jimmy McGill actually pivoting away from that plan, uh, for it to actually work. So he's, that's the reason he's the guy for this. He's, he's really quick on his feet and very good at talking his way out of, out of problems. Yeah. And did you know that Gomez was the guy to eat expired vanilla frosting? <laughs> I was going to ask you, uh, yeah. what, what's up with uh, Marie's food safety procedures? Why is this something that Hank is and ranting Hank about? Be, Hank being like disgusted by, uh, Gomi eating frosting, like, uh, like slightly expired, like sugary frosting felt very judgmental coming from Hank. That feels like that's something that Hank himself would do. It definitely does. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe I'm projecting because I did just like within the last two months crush a thing of of chocolate frosting. Was it expired? No, it was very fresh. Uh, very happily, my wife works at a kitchen now. She works in an event space and uh, often gets to bring food home. And so she brought like this big tube of chocolate ganache. Uh, and Antonio did, didn't last much longer than a week or so. <laughs> Straight to the belly. Josh the ganache. Yeah, Josh the ganache. Yeah, that's they good. They call me. One of my, the, uh, one of my many names from the old funny. days. It- <laughs> It's just it. Hank's Hank's patter is always going to be funny, and that's a fundamental aspect of the character that it was. Really I hope fun we have, to have him on the back. show for the long haul. Uh, but I, I I don't know what what the level of um, commitment to Better Call Saul we're getting from from Dean Norris and Stephen Michael Cazada moving forward. I think the fact that it was under wraps for as long as it was suggests to me that this is a fairly brief turn. Um, I don't expect that we're going to get to see them like all season long. Uh, we may get to see them throughout the season, but I would expect just like a smattering of appearances here and there at the best. Um, but I, I would love to have, I would love, I would love the world in which Hank Schrader is a series regular on, on Better Call Saul. I, I don't see it. I, I think that we're going to be in special guest star status with Dean Norris. Uh, anytime we do get him, I did note a special guest star for for Dean Norris. Seeing Michael Cazada just a guest star, what's the deal? <laughs> is that special enough for you? I'm not a SAG after guy. Like I don't know uh, exactly how that works. So I have a feeling that those different credits mean a different level of compensation or some different level of uh, guaranteed base minimum or day rate or whatever it is. So that's it has to be. I, I always wondered, like, yeah, special appearance by what does that credit mean? Uh, somebody out there can probably tell us. But there are those levels. Uh, that means something throughout. So you don't get uh, you don't get that for by accident. You get that uh, because you have a good agent and because 
you work your way into this. And so he's a special guest star for now. Uh, we'll see if this morphs into something more. My guess going forward, right, is Gus, it seems like by the end of this episode, is in a, is in a place where he's going to have to let this dead drop thing happen. And he's going to lose some larger sum of money uh, to cover this. And that's just what's going to happen. And he's going to have to respond to that. Does his response necessarily involve the DEA? Um, if you'll recall, of course, from the Breaking Bad timeline, uh, Gus Fring is a guy who's in very good graces with local law enforcement. That's part of his cover. So you you do wonder if if he's going to if there's going to be a counter response here um, that involves him working against the Salamanca somehow. Um, is it going to be this cold war where they're diming each other out? Uh, it remains to be seen. But I could see where if that sort of thing does emerge, um, then there is some ongoing action between the two parties. That's something that could involve Hank, right? And it could yeah. involve Domingo as an ongoing informant. And there are ways that we could see Hank in this series more, or he could go the way of Gail and Lydia and other people from Breaking Bad who have appeared in the show once or twice, uh, and then we know they're available to the extent the story calls for them. And I think there's just it's just as likely that we see that with Hank. Uh, but I don't think we're done with Hank for this season anyway. I think we're going to see him uh, a few we'll more see times, him again, I for sure. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. For sure, for sure, for sure. Right. Uh, one of the great pleasures of Better Call Saul is, uh, you know, this is ideally what any good prequel is going to do, but there are not many good prequels. Um, but just this idea that so many of the people we're watching here are all you know dealing with their torment their existential dread um some of them are not some of them are like decently happy like hank schrader at this point in time but they're all headed towards the same storm right like they're all headed towards hurricane heisenberg uh and so watch them make all of the choices that they're making right now uh when there are all these opportunities that present themselves along the way as like trap doors to get out of the lives that they're le- leading right now and the inevitable decisions that they're making to resist that call to reason right like to resist that call <laughs> of like put it away don't do this anymore um that by resisting that they're headed right into the maw of this rogue agent who uh you can't imagine that better call Saul can get away without bringing Walter White literally onto the show at some point relatively soon um if not like as like a season five cliffhanger then certainly in the final season um unless like they just like leave us with like the understanding that that is like the the buzzsaw that they are all headed towards um it's just it's just great stuff to watch and i thought that this week uh bringing hank into the mix just like helped like kind of like crystallize that for me that all these people in in some way shape or form are heading into the buzzsaw of that crystal meth empire it's true. And I, they, we, there are people like Papa and Kim, uh, specifically who we are very concerned about as a result of that. Uh, but we are, we are much further down that road, uh, than we have been. And it makes sense because the end is nigh. Uh, we know that a better, that Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul will come together in some way because Better Call Saul is ending after season six. Uh, and so with the end being nigh, uh, it makes sense that we would get there. Speaking of the end being nigh, Josh, anything else? You wanted to hit before we wrap this podcast. No, I'm good, Antonio. Uh, check out that Dean Norris interview if you'd like to read some more Dean Norris action. It's up on THR.com. 
And if anybody wants to talk to me about the possibility of eminent domain and why that wasn't in play from a legal standpoint in this episode, I'm always available to discuss that on Twitter <laughs> at AC Mazzaro. Uh, there, there's, there's a very notable eminent domain uh, case, Josh, that takes place just a couple years after our timeline here at Better Call Saul. Uh, and I think that ultimately is why, wow. uh, we're, we're not, we're in a position where, uh, it, they, they did not go under that realm, but there's, there's that aspect to talk about. If wow. anybody wants to talk about it, get at me about eminent domain uh get eminent eminent domain twitter is is lit Uh, i'm sure it is unfortunately somewhere i I also do think of this podcast as his eminence's domain his eminence being yourself oh thank you i appreciate that and i'm just i'm 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 thrilled to be here as your court jester doing my best to to make make it sound like i'm i know what i'm talking about with Better call Saul. Well, if you want to subscribe to our podcast uh, and 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 hear all of this chicanery, uh, go to postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes. That's uh, will get you to the direct feed for this particular podcast. Of course, there's always stuff going on across the board, Josh, at Post Show Recaps. You guys are talking about Lost every week down the hatch podcast, but there's also Star Trek Picard podcast. Josh, Fear the Walking Dead. Is that right? What else is in the mix? It's main Walking Dead right now. Uh, curb Your Enthusiasm also uh happening right now westworld is just around the bend uh the news on that front coming your way within the next week or so as it has to because the show comes back on march 15th uh maybe you'll just get the news when the when the show comes back but we're gonna have podcasts here on poster recaps it's definitely gonna be a thing uh so yeah lots going on curb your enthusiasm walking dead better call saul lost down the hatch and star trek picard uh, what a time to be alive on Post Show Recaps. What a time to be alive indeed. And let's hope that time continues for Papa, for Kim, and for everybody else <laughs> yes. here in the Better Call Saul universe. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back next week to cover Episode 4 of Better Call Saul. 